Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hi, my name is Miranda Lutz, and I am a senior associate in Global Council's Washington, D.C. office. I'm very excited to be joined today by my colleagues Chris Rinkus and Ben Bassett to discuss the recent elections on November 2nd. These elections were particularly notable because Virginia is now a swing state again. The Republican candidate Glenn Youngkin beat out the Democratic candidate Terry McAuliffe by two points. And there were a number of other very close races for for Democrats, including for the New Jersey governorship, which the Democratic candidate Phil Murphy just barely won over the Republican challenger Jack Cittarelli. So Chris and Ben, I would love to first get your initial thoughts on just how surprising this election was for, for Democrats. I think, you know, if we had gone back a few months ago, Democrats felt pretty good about McAuliffe's chances in Virginia, and that has sharply turned around in a re- relatively quick time. So Chris, maybe I'll start with you. You know, what does this mean for, for Democrats and how do you think that they're feeling right now? Thanks, Miranda. Uh, looking forward to this conversation today. So I think Wednesday morning, Democrats woke up and were pretty shocked at the results to see this in both Virginia and New Jersey. It really punctuates what has been a pretty difficult summer and fall for the Biden administration. And in particular, the fact that we saw this in two very different states with two pretty different Republican candidates. Uh, you know, Although the candidate in New Jersey didn't win, in both states, you saw a sea change in the margin as compared to the presidential that seems to go beyond just some of the flaws in the McAuliffe campaign. So I do think this really marks a pretty important inflection point for the Democrats. You know, Looking forward, they now know uh, what had looked previously like a fairly weak mandate, although they've run as if they had a strong mandate, is now almost certainly a weak mandate and looking forward to 2022, they're at real risk of losing one or both chambers of Congress. And so for Democrats, it's pretty hard to find a silver lining in the results. Although they kept the governorship of New Jersey, the fact that it was so close, it'll even go to a recount, although nobody really thinks the final result will change, um, really sends a strong signal to the Democrats and I think is going to, to curb their agenda. And Ben, how do you think the Republicans are taking the, the news? Well, I, I, I think Republicans should be pretty satisfied. You know, I, I think looking at New Jersey, there was really no one thought Jack Cittarelli had had much of a chance against Phil Murphy. I, I think looking at Virginia, Youngkin's win demonstrated a number of a number of positive takeaways for Republicans. I think the first one was that Republican candidates do not necessarily need to fully embrace Trump. However, they still need his voters. And so I think there's a really important caveat there that Glenn Youngkin was, frankly, an excellent candidate in, in threading the needle, in gaining in, or ensuring that Trump supporters stay, stay on his campaign, but also attracting some likely 2020 Biden voters. That being said, I think it's also important to, to note that Virginia was a state that Biden won by 10 points. And I don't think you can expect a similar strategy 
in states where where Trump did very well. I think some other issues that that really I think were were important to to, to look at are that people vote on local issues. Yunkin really made this election about local issues into Virginia, while McAuliffe really tried to tie Trump to Yunkin. McAuliffe really relied on making this a national race. I think that that is something that Republicans can take away. This was a strategy that they had largely employed pre-Trump. They had focused on local small issues that affected day-to-day voters. And I, and I think the third thing, and I'll stop after this, is that education is was a really important, critical issue. And it's likely going to be be so in, in 2022. I think that it will have a weaker effect in 2022 because I frankly, I think that when you look at the education issue, it was not just the 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 talk of critical race theory that Democrats are, are arguing was the the driver of this this strong turnout turnout for Yunkin, but rather I think that it really also had to do with the fact that that schools were closed. For example, Fairfax County, which has roughly 13 percent of the state's population, they were not they did not have full time or in person learning for the 2020 2021 school year. That will drive a lot of suburban voters out against McAuliffe, particularly when he made that that statement at the debate where he said that he doesn't think that parents should tell schools what to teach. And also, I don't think really it didn't help that he had Terry McAuliffe or he had he had Randy Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, to close out his campaign rally. Yeah, no, I, I you brought up a number of interesting points there, and Chris, I want to bring you in on this as a former senior official at the Department of Education. Um, and I think you had had previously said that, you know, it also comes down to the the likability of candidates. And Terry McAuliffe is arguably not the most inspiring, um, is maybe the the polite way to put it. Um, so how do you think that played into, and you know, post mortem, is that going to be a fact? big factor that Democrats are considering, or do you think that they are going to immediately extrapolate the lessons learned, you know, particularly the the local issues, the the um, education issue onto 2021? Because as we know, Democrats and moderates are going to say that, you know, McAuliffe swang too far to the left in, as, in an attempt to make this part of a national race. Um, and then others will say, no, he was too centrist and go far enough. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. Um, so a couple of things. So so one, I mean, that McAuliffe quote in the debate about not wanting parents to tell schools what to teach will go down as an all timer. I mean, good, good grief. Um, if you wanted to point to a single moment that seemed to swing the tide of the election, if not deliver it to Youngkin altogether, that would be it. Um, and, and McAuliffe had pretty deep flaws as a candidate. I mean, conceding he was already governor of Virginia once, which is a pretty strong qualification. Everything else would seem to point against him. I mean, a background as a fundraiser, no real inspiring message, um, doesn't particularly appeal to any of the groups in which Democrats have come to rely on their coalition, African-American voters, Hispanic voters to a large degree, working class voters. Um, and so, so it would be easy to say and isolate McAuliffe as such a bad candidate as to you know, make this result almost inevitable. I do think you're going to hear that from Democrats, and I think it's largely revisionist history, right? Um, you know, I'll say again, the fact that the Virginia result to a large degree tracks with the changes you saw in the New Jersey electorate is what should be sending the biggest 
you know, blinking red sign to, to Democrats, because if you can do it in two states as diverse as those, um, you can do it in a lot of places. And, and New Jersey is not a swing state by, by any stretch of the imagination. The education issue is interesting. And I think, you know, we'll have play going forward. I think every viable candidate in 22 is going to now need to address it in some manner. Um, and it's an issue that's, you know, important to me personally, I've worked in education for the bulk of my career. And so I'm really happy to see it take on greater prominence. It's, it's important, you know, after COVID, we saw student performance just plummet and, you know, no clear sign yet that it's, it's ready to rebound. Um, but I, I do also think, you know, if I take off my education hat and put on my political analyst hat for a minute, uh, in some ways, it's just the most acute symptom of, I think, a larger fatigue among the electorate that is that comes from the COVID restrictions over the past 18, you know, nearly 24 months now. You know, the exit polls in Virginia, although exit polls are sort of increasingly unreliable because of all the mail-in votes, but exit polls suggested COVID prevention, COVID mitigation was not top of mind for voters. But I do think what is top of mind of voters is when do the COVID restrictions phase out altogether? When do we see a fully reopen economy? When do we see schools back to normal? When do we see businesses back to normal? And, you know, in, in red states, you hear, I live in Washington, D.C., so, you know, I'm guessing, but in, in a lot of red states, you hear, you know, things have to a large degree returned to normal. I think in blue states and in purple states, it does not quite yet feel like that. And so that, too, I think is motivating for some of these voters people recognize that COVID is not yet over, but they want to know what the plan is to get us from here to it being over, to it being endemic. And, you know, I mentioned to some of my colleagues the other day, if I were President Biden, uh, the first thing on my list to do after the results of Tuesday's election would be to lay out a plan for how we get back to normal. Um, and I just think at this point, you know, we've got a couple more fights before we get there. The OSHA workplace mandate uh, for vaccines will be a big one. And unfortunately, I think it plays against Democrats. People, you know, I know they're doing it in good faith, but people are are really tired. And so if or until we have this vision for how we get back to normal, I think people are going to, to go to the other side. Miranda, you worked in on the Hill for a number of years. Walk us through the, the thought process or, or what, what are Democrats thinking right now? The day after this election, they come in, they realize that, you know, there's there's Arguments that this is 2009 all over. 2010, as as many of us remember, was a a rough year for Democrats, where they lost upwards of 60 seats. What are Democrats thinking right now? I think it's going to be really tough. I and I think that the comparisons to 2009 um, are a little bit unfair. The margins, um, you know, in the House at the time were drastically different. Uh, Nancy Pelosi only has three seats um, in the in the House and has only one vote in the Senate. And so you're just kind of on a base level dealing with different dynamics there. I think that there's going to be a big push to try and get these two massive pieces of legislation, the bipartisan infrastructure package and the budget reconciliation package across the line. Um, you know, members had really wanted to get that done prior to the November 2nd election, knowing that it could potentially move the needle. I think that now there is a lot of uncertainty amongst Democrats, even more so that they would be able to hold onto the House in 2022. And so they know that they need 
to get this done. But there's still some ugly fights happening um, that are going to happen, I should say, particularly around the budget resolution, which has definitely dropped down from the $3.5 trillion that was initially proposed. But moderates are probably going to want to carve that up a little bit more after this um, election and, you know, fears of inflation, rightfully or wrongfully, are very much um, tied into this debate. I think it's it's interesting. I was at an event yesterday um, and Adam Schiff, who is a representative from California, he heads the um, House Intelligence Committee and he had felt and I think this was a little bit more of projecting or wishful thinking, but he had felt that this election and in 2020 was the Democrats correction year so that they're not actually up for as many losses in 2022 because they had already suffered worse losses in 2021 and then in these um, special elections that have been happening this year. I think, again, that that's wishful thinking, um, but it's interesting to to think that that's, you know, or to know that that's how they're kind of um, thinking about this mentally. Ben, you've covered the, the bipartisan um the Budget Reconciliation Act extensively, particularly the climate provisions. You know, this is also a you know week of COP26. I think those provisions, um, you know, in particular, are are up for debate right now. So, would love to get your thoughts on what you think that means. Yeah. So, I I, I definitely think that you know the pressure to scale back the Build Back Better Act is 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 ratcheted up after Tuesday. I think that there are a lot of areas that that particularly moderates like Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia are are really going to push back on. Part of that, I think, is why, and and this is something that we had wrote in a in a blog that the DC team produced yesterday. There's going to be significantly greater pressure to pass the infrastructure bill simply because Democrats need to change the narrative right now. They need something that they can point to that they have that they've that they've passed. The bipartisan infrastructure bill is ready. Build Back Better Act is is just simply not. When you turn to the climate provisions, it, it's actually pretty interesting. I I personally don't think that there's going to be that much cut out of the 550 billion. I think that's largely because what is actually in the climate related provisions are largely tax credits. They're produ- production tax credits. There's 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 not a lot of massive progressive funding measures. For example, the, the Clean Electricity Performance Program, which was a $150 billion program that would essentially incentivize utilities to switch to renewables and fine utilities that do not, that was scrapped. And so progressives were already slightly disappointed that the $550 billion didn't include some of these sweeping measures that that they had hoped for. And so with that context in mind, I actually think that the the climate provisions are less likely to be on the chopping block. I think that there are a number of other other issues that are paid family leave is is going to be a particular issue. Salt tax. I know that that Representative Gottheimer of, of New Jersey had said that that there was now going to be this in, this was going to be included. Senator Bernie Sanders came out vehemently against that. Immigration is another issue. I just think that there are a lot of other areas that will that will be up for debate. I think that the climate provisions, there might be some cuts around the edges, but I think those those frankly are are largely squared away. 
That, that's really interesting. And Chris, I know you've covered paid family leave and the SALT um, in depth, so would love to get your sense of, you know, what this means for the tax provisions um, and the uh, you know, social spending provisions. Um, so that's the, the first question. Second question is, I think if our base case is that even if there's paring down of the um, Build Back Better bill and the, the, the BIF passes, um, what's on the agenda for for next year ahead of 2022 midterms? Thanks, Miranda. Um, well, I mean, I sort of want to answer the second part first. I'm not sure at this stage how much we can look ahead to 2022 because I will put out there, I'm not sure we're going to get this done by the end of 20, the BIF and the, and the Build Back Better by the end of 21. Uh, and the, the reason being, you know, not only do you have just the, the ordinary calendar with, you know, the holidays, and Congress loves their holidays. Um, the way the process is going at this point, uh, the House and the Senate are increasingly on divergent paths with respect to uh, the the Build Back Better Act. So, you know, without getting too wonky, earlier on this process, House leadership Nancy Pelosi made the decision that they wanted their members to only take one vote on the multi-trillion-dollar reconciliation bill. And in order to do that, you have to pre-conference with the Senate to effectively ensure you both agree to the bill. There won't be uh, inter-chamber uh, changes to it, and it won't require multiple votes. They had remained on that path for the better part of the fall, even through these fits and starts. Uh, and only in the past week or so, and I think the election in Virginia certainly influenced this, House Democrats are now putting together a bill without waiting for the tacit agreement of Senators Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. And so what you will see, uh, and Pelosi has offered that there will be a vote as early as this week on both packages, uh, what will end up happening if they in fact pass that is they will send a bill to the Senate that the Senate then changes. And the change will then require additional votes in the House. And so you are prolonging a process and extending the negotiation now potentially significantly. This continues to be uh, a situation in, in which, you know, I think the Democrats have have sort of, you know, tried to fake it till you make it, where by projecting confidence and by offering up symbolic progress, it might have given the appearance of um, consensus and the appearance of momentum. But the reality is, I mean, you guys tell me if I'm wrong. Like, I don't think we're in a materially different place in terms of getting all of the Democrats and they need essentially all of them on board than we were six or even eight weeks ago. And although the top line has now come down, if you read between the lines and the media coverage, you know, most people would suggest they knew it had to come down. Uh, and so one might argue they kind of wasted time, you know, talking about the three and a half trillion dollars in the first place. But the reality is, I don't, you know, four, six weeks, I think minimum to try to settle these differences now, both within the House Democrats caucus, as well as now between the House and the Senate Democrats. Yeah, I feel like this is almost a Groundhog Day situation. We've been having these almost same conversations since May of this year, June, certainly the summer. And I think that the media attention and the headlines and it makes it seem like there's a lot of progress and a lot of things are moving but to your point, you know, we always knew that Senator Manchin um, would never support a $3.5 trillion bill. Um, you know, that's just 
a given. And so, you know, they've Democrats have, like you said, I think it's um, you could say it's a fact they've wasted months of negotiating and bickering. Um, and that's going to be problematic now that we're, we're headed into the end of the year, specifically on, on the tax angle, because that is really yeah. important for the GC client base. You know, where do you think that will end up, you know, particularly as, as taxes um, are an important pay for. And so in, in a way they determine the contours of the final piece of uh, legislation. That, that that's that's right, Marina. Thank you for um for circling back to that. So, the the big change that we saw in the tax uh, proposals over the past couple of weeks was, whereas initially, and you know, it does sort of feel like Groundhog Day. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about big tax changes that uh, it was hard to see actually coming to fruition. Um, but early in the process, discussions of essentially rolling back the 2017 tax cuts. Uh, for large corporations and high net worth individuals, which meant increases to the individual and corporate tax rates. There were also proposals, some of them pretty novel, to tax unrealized capital gains, uh, both for individuals potentially at, at death uh, with a change to the step up in basis, which is a longstanding provision that helps to transfer wealth to your heirs um, without incurring a large tax bill. Um, and even most recently, a sort of last minute proposal to tax billionaires uh, and some of the most wealthy billionaires in the country on their unrealized gains. Uh, and, and, you know, there were numbers thrown around for somebody like a Mark Zuckerberg, whose wealth is built almost exclusively on unrealized gains in uh, Facebook equities. He might have had a tax bill of $20 billion. And so um, at the end of the day, all of those provisions, the changes to individual tax rates, uh, for high net worth individuals, changes to the corporate tax rate, this billionaire's tax, taxing unrealized gains at death, all came out. Uh, and now what we're looking at is a much more modest set of tax changes that includes um, a corporate minimum for corporations, which I think is politically palatable. Um, you know, this comes in response to the stories you see from time to time about Amazon and Salesforce and other large corporations paying zero in federal taxes year over year, which um, is frustrating to a number of people, myself included, uh, as well as some um, additional uh, newer changes. You know, they are now looking at a surtax on people who earn uh, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars per year, which is less than the billionaire's tax, but still will bring in some new revenue, um, as well as uh, a change in corporate tax reporting that's a function of this new global minimum tax that um, Janet Yellen had negotiated with a number of uh, countries around the world over the past several months. So, so all in all, you know, a more modest set. I think if you're not an ultra high net worth individual or you're not a very large corporation, you're not gonna feel the effects of, of these tax changes to any great degree. And in fact, uh, Ben had mentioned earlier, there's chatter about lifting the cap on state and local tax deductions or SALT that was imposed in 2017, um, which is an issue that's very important to members from New York, New Jersey, California, which have very high state tax rates. Um, it's, in a, it's in the draft that the House is considering that they could vote on as early as um, this week. And if, if that SALT cap gets lifted, uh, ironically enough for all the Democrats' rhetoric, if you're just a sort of run-of-the-mill wealthy person earning between 
something like 400,000 to a million dollars plus per year, you actually might see a tax cut uh, because lifting that SALT deduction is going to lower your overall federal tax burden. So it's been a pretty crazy journey to get to where we are here. The very last thing I'll say is uh, it's not yet set either. And so the, the big test for these tax proposals the Democrats have put forward is that uh, several House moderates, as well as Senator Manchin from West Virginia, have now called for the Congressional Budget Office or CBO to score this proposal prior to any vote. Um, and what that means is this neutral referee that evaluates legislative proposals is going to now look at what the administration has described, and they will give it a score as to whether or not the proposed revenue raisers will actually raise sufficient re revenue to pay for the new spending. And unfortunately, you know, I'm not an economist, but I mean, I'm looking at the list that the Biden administration has put forward. One of the most glaring items is uh, a sort of ambiguously worded investment in the IRS to close the tax gap, which seems to be made up of two components, uh, more, mo more money for the IRS budget to increase enforcement. And then there's been a lot of chatter about this proposal to require banks to, to report more information to the IRS about savings accounts and effort to try to lift up suspicious activity, which has been heavily criticized. Members on both sides of the aisle really have strong feelings about sending more information to the IRS about the average taxpayer. Um, but in any case, that proposal is meant to raise over $400 billion, which I think exceeds really the most generous expectations um, that you've heard from even left-leaning economists. And so long story short, if the CBL comes back and says, this is not going to raise enough, then in fact, uh, in, in Punchbowl News this morning, they talked about uh, University of Pennsylvania, which has a well-respected group that scores legislative proposals, is also likely today to come out and say the Biden revenue raisers are not going to raise enough to offset, offset all the new spending. You're looking at just another obstacle for the Democrats to get past because they have said very clearly, and like to the point of you know, almost ridiculousness, this bill costs nothing. It costs zero. You heard the White House press secretary said over and over, the president himself said over and over, Nancy Pelosi. So if if instead they're looking at a situation where these respected groups, including the CBO, are saying, no, if you don't change your revenue raisers, it will in fact cost something, that makes it all the more difficult to get this forward. And, you know, I think supports this argument. It's going to take longer, be harder. And I'll even just end by saying, you know, whereas I was pretty bullish on the prospects of a unified Congress and White House passing a pretty big spending bill, I think now the cracks are growing to a point where it is certainly plausible that nothing at all happens. They've got some big differences to bridge before they can get this across the finish line. Yeah, and that finish line is rapidly approaching. They had had a December 3rd deadline for government spending, and so the the thought that they could get this all wrapped up in four weeks is certainly you know, you, you never say never, but as you've just discussed, you've laid out a number of challenges that make it seem pretty hard to envision that happening. You know, well, just and, you know, Miranda, we should throw out for posterity's sake to all the listeners, nobody is talking about the debt limit and that the contours of that debate have not changed in IOTA. And, you know, the, that deadline is December 3rd. Uh, you're right. They've got to fund the, the government, which is a big one. Uh, I, I don't I mean, what do you do? You know, they they need 
the Democrats have said they're unwilling to do it, but in theory, the vehicle to lift the debt limit would be the reconciliation bill. That ain't going to happen by December 3rd. So you're looking at a standalone, which they would not do just a couple of weeks ago. McConnell, I think surprisingly caved on this matter. He is, I cannot see him doing that again. And so yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. The the shrug is a is um, a great example of because and the, the debt ceiling isn't getting a lot of coverage and that's going to be a huge problem and it's something that Secretary Yellen has been, you know, not screaming about but kind of screaming about um, for the past few few months um, and so it, that will be a, a really tough debate. You know, if we take a step back and look ahead to 2022, post 2022, if Republicans take control of the House. What does this mean for the Biden administration, for a Democratic Senate, um, you know, a divided Congress? Because, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the divisions within the Democratic Party between progressives and moderates, but there, you know, are just as many factions in the Republican Party at the moment. I mean, if you think that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Mitt Romney are under the same umbrella, uh, you know, that's a little bit surprising to think about. So just what does that mean? You know, do you think that the Republicans could work with Democrats on anything in a divided Congress? How does Biden then get the rest of his agenda across the line, you know, post-2022? Ben, I'll turn to you and then Chris, and then I think we can wrap it up there. Yeah, so I mean, I guess my answer is short and sweet. Not much. There's there's not going to be a lot of bipartisanship uh, post-2022, I think it's fairly safe to say that at least one House of Congress will be a Republican majority after 2022. I think that's fairly safe to say. I, I just, I don't see that much happening. I think Biden's agenda really comes to a standstill. What you're going to see is the onus placed on agencies. You're going to have the CFPB, the SEC, EPA, that's where the agenda is going to get furthered if it does at all. But I think that there's a there's a major caveat there that federal rulemaking takes a long time. The process is extremely long. It's extremely complicated. I frankly, if if the Biden administration is hoping that the EPA can deliver a key component of his climate agenda in two years before 2024, I, I think he's mistaken. It's just the timing is just not going to happen. So I think you're really going to see a, a fair amount of standstill. And I, I think that the GOP right now, in the near term, they just have to do nothing. All the topics that we've, we've chatted about this morning, Democrats don't have don't have their 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 situation put together. And I think that that plays completely into Republican hands. I think you're right, there, there's going to be problems if assuming that Republicans are back in a, a majority position in either the House or Senate or both. But I think that for, at a high level, you're going to see two year, the final two years of the Biden administration be deadlocked. You know, there really isn't much that can, that, can, that can get done. I mean, the one thing that can get done is infrastructure, and we're already talking about that bill. And so once that bill gets passed, I think it's pretty unlikely that we're going to see a second bipartisan infrastructure bill. And so I, I think you're really looking at a standstill. But again, pressure will be on agencies to, to, to take the next step and fulfill the agenda, but there's only so much they can do. Yeah, I, I think Ben's right. I mean, I'll say 
one positive and then spend the rest on uh, <laughs> not as positive. You know, I, I think there's a lane for China. Um, you know, there's enough of a bipartisan consensus that we have to do more to contain China, raise our competitiveness vis-a-vis um, -vis China. The, the Senate passed uh, the Endless Frontiers Bill, which has contains a number of measures meant to, to contain China's influence and grow the U.S.'s research and manufacturing capabilities. I could see something like that passing even, a, a, you know, a divided Congress. Um, there's a there's a slim that's a slim chance there's an even slimmer chance I think for some consensus around tech uh, legislation you know it does seem like the horseshoe kind of curves you, you know with both parties in that you know you've got a critical mass of members that want something done although different you know ultimate priorities so unlikely but that's I suppose plausible the main thing I I, I would say especially if the house flips which at you know in November 4th 2021 seems almost certain is uh, I, I, I'm actually, you know, recalling uh, Mitch McConnell's famous warning to uh, Harry Reid that if they eliminated the filibuster, that they would regret it and they might regret it sooner than they think, uh, which turned out to be quite true. I think McCarthy might have a similar moment uh, with, you know, Pelosi and the Democrats because some of the actions they've taken over the past uh, year and perhaps even the last three years have been pretty unprecedented in terms of partisanship. And now one might argue they were, you know, that's they were forced to do so. But in any case, the fact that they've stripped Republican members committee ships, uh, you know, they Pelosi didn't accept uh, McCarthy's nominees for the January 6th uh, committee. I think McCarthy is going to have great pressure from members and their constituents to do something uh, in response. And so, you know, the first time you see one of the uh, far left members of Congress say something, uh, you know, unpalatable, or, uh, you know, I think you're going to see their committee ships come up for, for a vote, just like they did to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, I also think you're going to see the investigations ratchet up substantially in a Republican controlled House. I mean, it's going to be shades of 2012 through 2016 uh, with select committees, potentially. I think Afghanistan will be um, right there at the top of the menu, perhaps for good reason. Um, but that's gonna be the, the order of business in a Republican controlled house is going to be, uh, I think, to slow and extract as much as they can from the Biden administration in an effort to advance mm -hmm. Republican agenda looking at 24. And that doesn't leave a whole lot of room for, for bipartisan lawmaking. Um, I, think, I think you're gonna see investigations and subpoenas, and in some ways, perhaps the Democrats coming to regret uh, some of their unilateral actions over the past three years. Yeah, it sounds like uh, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, investigations, <laughs> subpoenas, <laughs> and bears, oh my. Um, so on that uh, relatively unoptimistic note, um, I just want to say thank you, uh, Chris and Ben, for joining me. As always, it is interesting for our listeners, if you want to learn more about the election or any of the other topics that Global Council is covering, please uh, go to our website and you can also find um, my email as well as Chris and Ben's on the website as well if you have any questions about what's happening in Washington, D.C. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. 
For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.